All right, so we are in Mark chapter 12, and Mark chapter 12 starts out with a parable. And in order to fully understand this parable, it's important that we remember what was spoken about in the previous chapter, because we're kind of continuing on. We're in the same story here. We're in the same time. And it was two weeks ago that we talked about this. And if you haven't listened to that message, it's important that you uh, do listen to it. Otherwise, some of the things I say uh, might, you know, if somebody's listening online, might think, oh, wait, you're, you're way off. You have to go listen to the message from two weeks ago on Mark chapter 11. But one, so it's very important. You've got to understand what went on at Jesus's triumphal entry. Remember, he was going in to fulfill prophecy as Messiah, but when he entered into the temple, the people, it, they had failed to do their job. They themselves were unacceptable to a holy God. They had not been alike. They had shut people out of the kingdom. They violated every scripture, every prophecy about this specific time. Israel hadn't done their part. Jesus came and did his part. But Israel, as a people, they had not done their part. And as a result of their failure, Jesus had to do it all for them. Jesus did it all. Jesus did the work of the high priest. And Jesus ended up offering up himself as a sacrifice. So Israel, they were supposed to be the light. They didn't. Israel was supposed to uh, do their part when it came to bringing salvation and being a light to the world. And on one hand, they did. And on another hand, they absolutely did not. So I, th- I was trying to think of a good way to illustrate this. So uh, a good way to illustrate how Israel, on one hand, did fulfill prophecy, okay, and on the other hand, they didn't, is it would be like, Imagine if somebody from our church went and did a really bad thing, like, you know, shot up a gay bar or something like that. Now, while all of us in here would condemn that, there would every that that act would get attributed to our whole church, wouldn't it? We would be the church, you know, that does all these horrible things and everyone would you know, and so what we would do, you know, what we would probably do in that situation is we would try to do everything we could to distance ourselves from that individual that did that. You know, we would condemn what they did. You know, we would speak against it. Uh, you know, we, we would remove them from the membership of this church. You know, we would do whatever we could to just put our, some distance between us and what that individual did because we don't want any, we don't want any credit for it. But now let's reverse that too and say, you know, what if one person did it, but then we all affirm that and we're like you know what that was good then would it be wrong to kind of give our church credit for that you know if we supported that if we uh you know if we stood behind them on that thing or let's say too let's say they did something really good okay you know let's say that somebody from our church went and did some really good thing that was like nationally known you know and but then imagine if they did that good thing and then we put distance you know, then we don't get any credit, right? Well, here's the thing, you, you know, you got to understand about Israel and how on one hand, because what people do when you start talking about Israel losing the kingdom, which we're going to talk about, they start telling, you know, you're calling God a liar, and, you know, because that goes against all these Old Testament scriptures, okay? And watch out for the you're calling God a liar argument. That's not a real argument, okay? When somebody actually says God is a liar, then that's calling God a liar. If somebody disagrees with your interpretation of a scripture, that's not calling God a liar. Can we all get that figured out? Let's let's not use bad arguments like that. Okay, but 
what, so, but this is what people throw at us all the time. And they'll go to an Old Testament passage about something that's going to come to pass with Israel. Well, here's, here's what you have to understand. Is because of the fact that Jesus came from Israel and he was a member of the nation of Israel, he was a Jew, we see his lineage in the Bible, then in a way that Israel did bring salvation to the world, didn't they? But it was through Jesus Christ. But you know what Israel did when Jesus Christ came, who was of the seed of Abraham, and he did what he did? They put distance between them and Jesus. They rejected his work. They said, no, we don't want to have anything to do with that. They separated themselves from him instead of getting on board with what he did and instead of you know praising him for what he did, they were the ones that put distance between them. So understand, you're going to see some passages that it's very clear that that physical nation of Israel is cut off, they're done, you know, they're no longer going to be used. But on the other hand, the prophecies about Israel doing some things still came to pass because they were all fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And so it's important you understand that when you're looking at prophecies and don't let people confuse you with these things. There, there's no conflict. You just have to understand how legally Jesus fulfilled these things. But it doesn't change the fact that all these other people from Israel who rejected what Jesus did and had him killed, okay, they got cut off, folks. Those people, uh, they're not going to receive the inheritance. And so it's, it's very important that we understand that uh, in, you know, to be, if we're going to be consistent in our interpretation of the Bible. So all the fulfillment, it was through Jesus Christ instead of Israel as a physical nation. It ended up coming through a child of promise, Jesus Christ, somebody that was born of a virgin rather than just a regular individual from Israel. And so now it is 100% necessary if you're going to be a part of the kingdom, you must be born again. You got to get a new heritage. You've got to get a new father, and it's a heavenly father. And you've got to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ because the kingdom, it went to Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, you all understand these things here, but let's go ahead and start reading Mark chapter 12. Let's read this parable here because there are some parables that are pretty tough. But there's some parables that are real easy to figure out. And this is actually one of the easy ones. Yet a lot of people don't get it. So let's see what it says. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went to a far country. And as the season, he sent to the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some, having yet therefore one son is well beloved. He sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours. And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing 
and it is marvelous in our eyes. So notice, okay, and I, you know, I don't think I'm stretching this. The vineyard, that represents the kingdom, okay? The vineyard represents the kingdom. The husbandmen, the people in charge of taking care of this vineyard, seeing that it produces fruit and does what a vineyard is supposed to do, they are the Jews in this story. The servants, those are the prophets, the servants that the husbandmen persecuted, that they uh, that they killed, they did all the things they did to. And then the son, who do you all think the son was? Okay. There's no doubt who the son was. That was Jesus. And what did they do? And, and you know, and who's the one sending? His, it's, it's God the Father. He's saying, you know what? I've sent all these prophets to them, and they keep persecuting these prophets. Jesus called the Jews out for this very thing. In Matthew chapter 23, for them killing the prophets. And so there's no doubt he's talking about the Jews here. And then God says, you know what? They'll reverence my son. But what did they do? They killed the son. They said, this is the heir. He is the heir, not us. He is the heir. Let's kill him and let's seize that inheritance. Let me tell you something. The Jews have been trying to steal the inheritance for a long time. They're still trying to do it. And they don't have anything right now. But you know what? They've succeeded in making people think they've got something. But they don't. They're thieves and they're robbers. And you know what? They've stole a lot of what we have. They steal from us all the time. But you know what? They're not going to be able to steal from God. How dare you say the Jews steal? I'm sorry. I got that from Mark chapter 11 where Jesus told them they made his house. It was supposed to be a house of prayer. A den of thieves. They constantly. That's what, that's what Jeremiah got all over him for. Was them being thieves. This is something, a problem that they've always had. So, I don't think I'm stretching it out. We're not stretching this here. There's no doubt what this parable means. Absolutely no doubt at all. And so this is, when Jesus is given this parable here, this is prophetic, and he's saying he's going to take that vineyard from you, Jews, and he's going to give it to someone else who's going to get the job done. And so uh, this kingdom or this inheritance, it belonged to Jesus. It was meant for him. The Jews were there. God had given, the oracles of God had been committed to them. They had the temple. They had all these things and they were supposed to be doing a job as a people. They had a job to do until the heir came and the heir came and the heir was not impressed with what they had done. When the heir showed up to claim his inheritance, they had him killed. They killed him. The more Jesus proved who he was, the more the Jews wanted to kill him. And so what is the consequence is going to be for the Jews? All Israel is going to be saved? Is that what the consequences are going to be? Or will they be destroyed and the vineyard given to someone else? They're going to be destroyed. That's the consequences. And oh, what about Romans 11 where it says all Israel shall be saved? All right, let me just help you out real quick. That Romans 11 is just showing that Jews can still be saved. That's what it's showing. As a people, they are the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. As a people, they're going to be destroyed. According to 1 Thessalonians, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Okay, God's wrath is going to be on them as a physical nation until he returns and he destroys all of them. But at the same time, they are still beloved for the Father's sake and they could still be saved if they abide not still in unbelief. So we're not going to look at a, a, somebody that's a Jew out there and say, you're reprobate. No, they can still get saved. 
But guess what's going to happen if they don't get saved? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be finished. They're going to be done for. There's no doubt about that at all. And to just all of a sudden get this magical idea that they're going to get the kingdom back because of a misinterpretation of Romans chapter 11 is insane. When we've got clear passage after clear passage saying the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. God is going to destroy them that would not have him to reign over them. When is this supposed to be fulfilled? If they're all just going to magically get saved at the end of the tribulation, that's absolutely ridiculous. That's just bad Bible interpretation. So it says in verse 12, it says, And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. I love how angry they got, because you know know what makes people mad? People always get mad when a preacher preaches against them, but it makes them even more mad when the preacher preaches against them and he doesn't name them. And that's kind of what Jesus did there, too. Because, you know, he told a parable, but everybody knew who he was talking about. And, uh, and they, they got pretty angry. And that, that usually works. <laughs> Getting people angry. And, but, uh, you know, the Zionist Baptists, they do not understand this parable. But the Jews did. The Jews got it. The Zionist Baptists don't know what to do with this, but the Jews, they got it. And they got angry. And instead of repenting and saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill the heir. What did they do? They killed the heir anyway. They proved Jesus right. It's amazing. But it says, uh, and here's the thing. Not only did they not appreciate the parable, they they reacted the exact same way Zionist Baptists do when you interpret the parable correctly. They They got pretty angry. So verse 13 says, and they sent unto him, certain of Pharisees and the Rhodians to catch him in his words. So everything they're doing now, all the questions that they're, that we're going to see them asking, what we're, we're, what we're about to see is we're about to see every different group and sect of the Jews all unite coming after Jesus. You know, a lot of people act like too, a lot that want to be sympathetic towards the Jews. Oh, well, it was only just certain ones that had him put to death. No, they were all going after him. All the different groups were going after him. You know, and everybody wants to act like, no, it's just these small minority Jews. No, listen, across the board, even to this day, they don't like Jesus. And uh, it, it, it's not just a fringe group, okay? These, we're, we're seeing like every type. We're going to see come after Jesus here, asking him questions. These are not sincere questions. They are trying to catch him in his words. Let's make him say something that could get him in trouble. And beware of people like this. Okay? We don't have to answer loaded questions. Right? We don't have to do that. You know, and it's okay if you, if you just want to say, you know what, I don't think this person's sincere, and I'd answer that question. We're not Jesus. We don't have that wisdom that he had. And you, know, and you can try. I mean, if you feel led of the Spirit to answer a really dumb, loaded question, by all means, go ahead and do it. But at the same time, uh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to cast your pearls before swine. I think we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But verse 13, it says, And they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians, to catch him in his words, and when they were come, they say unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of men, but teachest the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? But look, look at the flattery they threw at him. This is like when people ask me questions on YouTube that are like super flattering. 
And, and usually when they, when I, when I get the flattering questions too, it's usually like, Pastor Tommy, we just love, you know, you're so impartial and unbiased and, you know, yeah, you're, you know, you're, you're not political on these things. What do you think about Pastor so-and-so's position? I know you'll do the right thing on this. I had somebody when I was teaching through my Revelation series that was pouring on the praise, pouring it on at, while I was going through there. And I, you know, I started noticing like there's something wrong with this person. And I remember I just from other comments and things I'd seen, they kept asking about Babylon, what my position was going to be on Babylon. And they were really, really hoping I was going to say that it was the Jews. They were really hoping for that. And they were buttering me up one side and down the other. Oh, I know you're not going to be intimidated by Pastor Anderson, you know, because he thinks it's America. We know that's wrong. And, you know, and he's, he's just pouring it on. And coincidentally, at the same time, there was another guy that was pouring on. And because th- this one was like a fake account. At the same time, there was another guy who had his real name who was pouring on the praise at me, too. And I even did like a uh, Google Hangouts to talk to this guy one time. We talked about a lot of different stuff with the Jews. Well, anyway, that guy turned out to be like a full-blown Nazi. And uh, and when when that got exposed, all of a sudden that dude just he disappeared from Facebook. He disappeared from everything. But I'm pretty sure this fake account, and I just saw a comment somewhere else that he left today uh, against me somewhere. I'm pretty sure it's that dude. I never had the full proof, but I'm telling you, it's hard to find two people that are that crazy, you know, in, in you know, in, in a weird, unique way like that. But anyway, as soon, and, and I knew, I was like, man, as soon as I preach what I believe about Babylon, he's going to throw a hissy fit. And sure enough, they both did. And, and said, I, I don't fall for that stuff. Yeah, I don't, I don't fall for those things. And when I'm, when somebody's asking me flattering questions like that, I just think wicked person, wicked person. I mean, and I didn't think Nazi wicked, but at the same time, uh, wicked person. But anyway, uh, I won't mention the video. I just saw him on the other day too. And he was, and you know what he was trying to do? He was trying to stir trouble up. I was literally preaching against the trendies at, at another church. I was preaching against the trendies. Okay. And there, listen, I'm very clear. I'm against the trendies. Okay? I think everybody knows that. But he was trying to make it like, oh, who's he preaching? Is he preaching against a new IFB and trying to stir trouble up? It's like, you nut job idiot. And just watch out for people like that. They're, they're all over the place and they make me want to vomit. But anyway, I want to vomit right now too because... Kelly gave me one of those jelly bellies that tastes like weird stuff, and I ate that one little thing, and my stomach is all messed up from that right now. I don't appreciate that. I don't like eating gross things. Not real sure what that flavor was, but I'm, ha- I'm having stomach problems right now from that one little thing. But anyway, I need to get back. I need to get back on track here. So this question is: It lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? This is a super easy question to get him in trouble with because, again, everybody knows Caesar's corrupt. Everybody knows Caesar's bad. The Jews, who many of them are following after Jesus, I'm sure they don't like Caesar. And so if Jesus says, yeah, give them the tax money. Oh, so you support funding all these soldiers to go killing all of our people. You know, you, you support that. But if he's, you know, you support all these things they're doing to take over the world. And you're now responsible for every bad thing that Caesar does because you're encouraging people to pay their taxes. You know, you always have the people that want you to be more anti-government than you should be. And then you always have the people, too, that want you to be more pro-government than you should be, too. You know, and it's always hard to 
find that balance and it's impossible to please everybody. But at the same time, if Jesus says, nah, see, you know, let's fight, you know, you don't have to pay those taxes, then they go accuse him to the Romans and then he's in big trouble because he's inciting the you know, mob and trying to get people to not pay their taxes. So this wasn't about them trying to find the right thing to do. They were trying to get Jesus in trouble. And so they said, shall we give or shall we not give? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said unto them, why tempt ye me? Bring me a penny that I may see it. And they brought it and he said unto them, whose is this, this image and superscription? And they said unto him, Caesar's. And Jesus answering said unto them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And I, I think this was a fantastic answer. But remember, here's what we need to get from this too. Because you'll have the super pro-government people that will use this and basically say, give Caesar everything that he asked for. Do everything Caesar says. But notice what Jesus said. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, let me ask you, what belongs to Caesar? What belongs, is it everything that Caesar declares as his? Or is it what God ordained him to be over? And that's one thing you've got to understand about government. When Pastor Skinny Jeans comes along and he's telling you, do everything the government says, Romans 13, all that, you need to understand that God ordained the government for certain roles and those things belong to the government. Those things belong to Caesar. For this cause, pay ye tribute. What cause? For the man who sent for the punishment of evildoers that's bearing the sword. We ought to pay people that are executing criminals. That's what we, we, ought, we ought to take care of those people who are doing that work, that are hunting down the bad guys and putting them six feet under for us. Now, I know not much of that's going on in this country today, but when they do that, we ought to pay taxes on that. But what about when Caesar says, well, you know what else is mine? Uh, it's my responsibility to educate your children. It's my responsibility to take care of all your health care. It's my responsibility to keep you from getting sick. Is that Caesar's? How about this? It's my responsibility to tell you when you can go to church and when you can't go to church. Did, did God ever give that to Caesar? No. He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What are Caesar's? These are the questions we need to ask. Is it what God gave him or what he has seized for himself? That's the question we need to ask. And you know what? I will gladly render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But when it comes to the things that are God's, Caesar can't have them. And when it comes to church, when it comes to the house of God and the things of God, Caesar has no say. Caesar doesn't get to tell us what we're going to preach in this church. Caesar doesn't, Caesar doesn't have an opinion on that. They can try. And you know what? There's been some Caesars that have tried to, you know, I think it was in Texas where they were telling pastors a while back they had to turn in all their sermon notes, basically, because they wanted to make sure they weren't preaching against homos. It was in some city because they had a homo mayor. And, of course, most of those pastors down there didn't do it. I think some of them did do it. It's like, glad. And then and they all preached sermons against the homos. And, like, and, you know, I would do that. Fine. You know, Prisker, you want my, you want my sermon notes and what I'm going to preach about you? I'll gladly send you a copy. I'll, I'll gladly do that. I want you to know what I'm going to say about you. 
But if you're wanting me to send it to you for your approval, you can go jump in a lake. You know why? Because I will render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but the things that belong to God, they can't have. And unfortunately, we've given Caesar too many things that God never intended for Caesar to have. So verse 18 says, Then come unto him the Sadducees. So first we had the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now we've got the Sadducees. And what's funny, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't get along with each other very much. But you know what? Because, yeah, well, that's just that one group of Jews. Right. But here's the thing. We've got all these different groups of Jews. And you know what they all have in common? They don't like Jesus. And so now the Sadducees come along. They're going to try to get, you know, trip him up, see if they can stump him. It says, then come on in the Sadducees, which say there is no resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if a man's brother die and leave his wife behind him, and leave no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and dying left no seed. And the second took her and died, neither left he any seed, and the third likewise. And the seven had her and left no seed. Last of all, the woman, woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, when they shall rise, whose wife shall she be of them? For the seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God? For when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Now, here's a big question that I have. Now, I've not done an extensive study on this subject here, on this question, but here's a question that I have. I'm just going to go ahead and throw out there for you right now. And that is, what scripture teaches from the Old Testament that we will be like the angels in heaven in the resurrection? I'm just going to be honest. I don't know for sure which one it is. So I would love to beat up on the Sadducees for not knowing the scriptures right here, but I don't really know for sure what that is. And I'd kind of like to know what it is. If anybody's got anything on that, uh, feel free to let me know. Um, you know, because and then he said, for when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are the angels of God, which are in heaven. So, again, what from the Old Testament would show us that we're going to be like the angels? And also what from the Old Testament shows us that the angels neither marry or are given in marriage? Okay? And, and again, if there's something from the Old Testament that tells us, you know, angels aren't, don't marry or are given in marriage, that kind of proves that Genesis 6 isn't angels marrying humans. If we're supposed to learn from the Old Testament that angels don't marry and they're not given in marriage, when we have in the Old Testament angels marrying human in marriage. You know, if the Nephilim people are right, which they're not. But uh, at the same time, I don't know. I want to know what I'm missing on that. And so I, it's just something I'm curious about. So that's, that's my big question. It's got to be there somewhere because Jesus told him, you err not knowing the scripture. And so I get convicted because like, I must not... <laughs> There's some stuff I don't know either because I, I don't really know for sure where that is. But um, and, and it could have something to do. Uh, well, I won't go. I won't speculate uh, right now. I end up looking stupid. But at, at the same time, if you got anything on that, let me know. But verse 26 says, "And as touching the dead that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses how in the bush God spake unto him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead." But the God of the living, ye therefore do greatly err. Now, this is why I think I'm probably not that dumb 
because in not knowing where that passage is, because I'll just be honest with you right now. That story of Moses at the burning bush where God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I never would have thought to use that as proof of a resurrection if Jesus hadn't used it as proof. I'd have probably just interpreted that, well, God was just telling Moses, I'm the God that you know your forefathers served. But the fact that God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he was speaking in present tense, you know, that right there, Jesus said, listen, that's proof that there is a resurrection. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. I wouldn't have thought of that. So chances are there's probably something like that in the Old Testament that we could go to that kind of gives us that evidence. So uh, I don't know, but you're going to have to look pretty hard. But just don't go Ruckmanite. You know, you go looking too deep at some things, you start getting into really weird stuff too. But either way, even if I don't figure out what the Old Testament, where it said that, at least I got the New Testament, and so I know it anyway. So I don't don't have to know where it's at in the Old Testament because Jesus told me it's there. So guess what? I believe it's there. But my curiosity wants to know where. And so uh, hopefully one of these days we'll find out. I might have to go to heaven. And then I asked Jesus then, and then he'll, I hope he says, man, you definitely didn't know the scriptures. And you thought you knew a few things, but you did, you never figured that one out. That's, that's pretty, that, that's very possible. We, we probably should stay humble, uh, when it comes to a lot of things with the scriptures. But the, you know, a resurrection is clearly taught in scripture, and to de- deny it was a great error. Because, um, Jesus said, you know, therefore ye do greatly err. Not believing in the resurrection was a major error. There are some errors that weren't so bad. You know, Jesus often said, you do err not knowing the scriptures. But here he said, therefore, you do greatly err. Denying the resurrection is a big deal. And that is something, again, we don't believe in uh, breaking fellowship over a lot of things, eschatology, when it comes to the, or at least when it comes to the timing of the rapture. But you better believe in the coming of Christ. You better believe in the resurrection of the dead. You better believe in those things. That That is a must. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, it says, Now if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. So this resurrection of the dead he's talking about here too this isn't just talking about if you don't that you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead at all, meaning you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. No, the resurrection of the dead is something that was talked about in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of examples of that. I can find that in the Old Testament. Even Job talked about it. Uh, it's talked about in Daniel chapter 12. It's all, all over the Old Testament. It talks about a resurrection of the dead, meaning there is going to be a day when everyone's going to rise from the dead. Okay? Those who are saved... You know, we're going to rise first, we're going to rise before everyone else, but after the millennium too, the rest of the dead, they're all going to rise and they're going to stand before God at the great white throne of judgment. That's And so that resurrection of the dead is something that we see throughout the Old Testament. And the reason we have hope of that and it being a good thing is because of the fact Jesus rose from the dead, because he conquered death. Therefore, we know that the grave has no power over him. So whenever he's ready for us, he can come back and he can say the word and we're coming back to life. 
He proved that he had that ability even before he rose from the dead when he called Lazarus up from the dead. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, one of these days, he's going to call up us up out of the grave. And so to deny the resurrection of the dead is to say that Christ is not risen. That's what Paul said. And so if somebody comes along and tells you, well, I believe Jesus literally rose from the dead, but I don't believe in a little literal resurrection of the dead for us, then you know what? They don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead, according to the Apostle Paul. It's a package deal. Because that resurrection of Jesus Christ is what proved the resurrection of the dead. And so uh, it is a great, great heresy to deny that. And it is, that is, a, that is you know, because again, Jesus didn't say you do greatly err not understanding whose wife that woman would be in heaven. And I'm thankful for that because I don't know where that scripture is. But he did say you do greatly err when it came to denying a resurrection. And I do know where those scriptures are. So I, I, I could preach a whole message just showing scriptures on that from the Old Testament. So uh, I might have some errors, but at least I don't greatly err in, the, in this area, at least, at least in this area. So first, the Pharisees and the Rhodians question. Then the Sadducees come. They ask him a question, thinking we'll stump him on this one. Failed miserably. And now we have the scribes that are coming along. Each group, united. All of them want to take Jesus down. It says in verse 28, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments. His hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. With all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, Well, master, thou hast said the truth. For there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength. And to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any question. Now, again, oh, you know, you're so mean to the Jews. They're not all like that. Well, here's a guy who knew the scriptures well. Here's the guy who said a bunch of super true stuff. But you know what Jesus said? You're not far. Which means he wasn't there. So even this one, the best of the bunch, he still wasn't there. And did he do anything to stick up for Jesus? No, he did not. No, he did not. The scribes were against Jesus too because again, this scribe came short of understanding who Jesus was and he was not saved. And therefore, he was going to go to the same hell that the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees were all going to. And so now, after these guys have all been asking Jesus questions and he's answering them and stumping every one of them, it says, now Jesus asked them a question. And he says, um, oh, and, and let me point this out too about that scribe who, again, this was a good question. The scribe knew his stuff. But you need to understand, you know, just because you have a good understanding of the scripture, that doesn't mean you're saved. A lot of people know a lot of stuff about the Bible and they're not saved. Knowledge will only do so much for you. You have to have your heart right too. And so this guy, being a scribe, he's in charge of copying scripture and things. This guy knows the scripture, 
but his heart's not right, and it didn't. So it didn't do him any good. So it's so important you have that. So verse thirty-five, and so Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, "How say the scribes that Christ is the Son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord." Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And now this is a great question because the father was always considered greater than the son, right? I mean, and then the farther back you go, the greater, correct? And so here he's pointing out, Jesus is pointing out the fact that David clearly understood that one was coming from him that would be greater than him. And he even called him Lord. And this is just another amazing thing that David wrote under the inspiration of God because David was a prophet. Okay? David was, in fact, a prophet. And just like David wrote, Thou shalt not leave my soul in hell, and he was talking about Jesus Christ, David referred to his descendant as Lord. You know why? Because David's descendant, Jesus Christ, was his Lord, wasn't he? And that right there, though, while it's easy for us to understand because we've all we've got that down, that would have been kind of an earth-shattering thing for these people during that time. But Jesus is pointing out a great truth, and Jesus just happens to be a son of David. And, and people knew that, too. People knew his, who his dad was. People knew his family. People even referred to Jesus as the son of David. And so Jesus pointing this fact out is probably something that most of them had never even thought of before. That's right. David did refer to him as Lord. And, you know, that's kind of an amazing thing. That kind of gives credibility to Jesus, who's claiming to be the Son of God and the Messiah. You know, that kind of gives credibility to what Jesus is saying. But again, it didn't matter. It didn't matter. These people were rejecting truth. They hated they hated Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 38, And he said unto them in his doctrine, Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost room at feasts, which devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. You know, Jesus wasn't somebody that went around you know, making a big deal about himself and demanding all this respect and adoration and things like that. Jesus lived a very humble life while he was on earth while he had these Pharisees parading themselves around like they were just the greatest thing ever, demanding all this respect and praise from people while they were only hurting people. Jesus Christ, he came to earth and was a servant. And Jesus came and he laid down his life for man. But then you have these Pharisees. What are they doing? They're making other people miserable for their, their own benefit. These, these, these Pharisees are the absolute opposite of what Jesus Christ was. And Jesus made it clear. He's like, you know, the, the Gentiles, you know, they exercise lordship over their people. But he, Jesus told his disciples, that shall not be so among you. You know, he that is the least or he that is greatest among you, let him be your servant. That's Christianity right there, folks. Christianity is not about creating hierarchies and who's the greatest and who's the best. Christianity is about people serving each other. Christianity is about people humbling themselves, lowering themselves. Why? Because that's what Jesus Christ did. And it's amazing. 
in Christianity today how we have all these hierarchies that are out there. And how we have, I mean, there, there's even some groups of Christians out there that you know, claim they, they have apostolic leadership. People who call themselves apostles. And they give themselves all these lofty titles. Even, uh, even uh, the doctor. That's what we do in the Baptist world. You know, we're always giving everybody all these honorary doctorates so they can get these big titles. You know, and, and some people too, I've heard people turn it and say, well, pastor too. You know, some people do it with pastors. Well, let me tell you something. You can make, you know, culturally, we can turn literally any title into a really big deal. Y'all understand that? Uh, I mean, if we want, we can make the title pastor mean more than it actually does and make it where it's like a really big thing. But at the same time, that title pastor, it just means shepherd. Okay. Now, when I read my Bible, I don't see shepherds as being like these super honorable people. In fact, I see people looking down on them. Remember David when he came along? Everybody's like, oh, he's just a shepherd. Okay. A shepherd, being a shepherd, you know, just taking care of a flock, that was not a high lofty title. And, but yet that is the role of a pastor in a church. He's just a shepherd over a flock. And we're not even the, the master or chief shepherd. It's Jesus that has that. So now that doesn't mean it's not possible for us as a, as a group of people to just put all kinds of adoration and meaning to that word and make it into something more than it actually is. But at the same time, uh, it's not about the title but it's about the attitude that comes with it and, and the way we treat it. And so, yes, some people make pastors out to be like kings and gods. And, you know, yeah, you can do all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't think it's wrong to use a term of something that you actually do. And I don't believe it was ever intended to be a lofty title. I think it was, I think it was a humble it's a humble thing, and it should be. And arrogant people have successfully made it an arrogant thing. But I don't think what that means we need to just throw it out and just, you know, y'all just start calling me Tommy or whatever, you know. And at the end of the day, it's not even about, you know, I don't go around demanding titles. I'm fine with y'all calling me brother. Okay? I'm totally fine with that. But at the same time, the only reason I even consider it is I do believe in respecting the office and that's the only reason you know I make it any kind of deal out of it at all it's not about the man it's about the office and it's one that I take serious and I think everybody should uh, take it serious because it is it is something that's important and so that's kind of another lesson for another day but I wanted to throw I wanted to throw that in there and so um, but yeah we're not supposed to be exercising lordship over people. I am not your Lord. Okay. I, I, and I'm not, I'm not a, okay, yeah, the bishops that rule well. Okay. And some people, I can't, they can't tell the difference between ruler and Lord. And it's like, you know, they, they see that one word there and all of a sudden it just goes to their head and they, they're ready to boss everybody around like a maniac. And that's just weird. Okay. Watch out for people like that. Um, you know, I'm your brother and companion. Uh, yeah, that's what John called himself, and that's what I like to call myself. But verse 41 says, And Jesus sat over against the treasury, 
And behold, how the people cast money into the treasury, and many which were rich cast in much. And there came a certain poor widow, and she threw in two mites, which make a farthing. And he called unto him his disciples, and saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that this poor widow cast more in than all they which have cast into the treasury. For all they did cast in of their abundance, but she of her want did cast in all that she had, even all her living. And I believe what Jesus is showing right here is that these guys who are casting in of their abundance, they're not doing a great thing. But this widow, she is doing a great thing because God doesn't, God's not interested in the size or the dollar amount. God's interested in the sacrifice. God's in, interested in the love. God's interested in the motive and the attitude behind it. And here you have a woman who comes and she is, she is giving sacrificially. She's giving everything that she has to the work of the Lord. And you know what? Jesus noticed that where these other people that are putting on a show of what they're bringing, probably sounding a trumpet and doing things like that. Jesus wasn't impressed with those people. And uh, there's a great lesson to be learned there too, because again, Jesus, he's, he's looking for the humble. He's looking for people like him. And Jesus was humble. Jesus wasn't arrogant. Jesus wasn't like these Pharisees and scribes and people he was dealing with in this passage. And so out of all these people, too, that we see Jesus dealing with in this entire chapter, the one that Jesus ends up pointing out is a widow who gave everything she had. It's really the only person Jesus said anything good about in this passage. The second, the runner-up was a guy who was almost there, but still didn't make it. And so... There's a, um, you know, what I think is interesting about this, what we're seeing in this story is a rejected people. Remember, Jesus just went into the temple and told them, my house should be called a house of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. And you know what Jesus saw? A rejected people trying to impress Jesus with their generosity. And Jesus wasn't impressed. He was not impressed by this. He, uh, and these people who are giving of their abundance, they really thought they were something because of it, but God is not impressed by the large gifts. God is impressed by the sacrifice. God is impressed by the heart. And Israel was in a horrible condition during this time. And what was so bad, what made it worse, is the fact they were in this horrible position, and yet they thought they were doing great. That's what was so bad about it. And as a result of their epic failure, they were about to lose the kingdom. And you know what? They did lose the kingdom. It ain't theirs anymore, and they're not getting it back. That physical group of people, they are not getting it back. It'll never happen. Any individual can get in on it if they will be in Christ, if they will get saved. But until then, they're in trouble so with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to learn from these things. Lord, I pray you'll help us as individuals. And I pray you'll help us as, a, as an individual church that we will do our job when it comes to the kingdom, that we will uh, spread the gospel to as many people as possible. We won't shut people out of the kingdom, but we will we'll continue bringing people in from uh, all over the world and all different walks of life. We will uh, spread the message of your love and of your salvation, and I pray you'll help us to uh, do good at teaching people to observe these things, and that we'll be good examples of Christians. You'll help us to 
be like you. Help us to be humble and uh, to learn from these things. In your name we pray. Amen.